Jack told me not to do. Sorry, guys. Um, my name is Erin, if I haven't met you yet. And um, I'm excited to spend the evening with you guys tonight in this cold, rainy, not quite normal LA winter day. So um, we are continuing in a series. Sorry, do you want me to keep talking? OK. Um, just try to tone everything else out, except the sound of my voice. Um, this series, this is week four in the series, we're going to do a not-so-pop quiz tonight to catch people up who haven't been here, and so we're just all on the same page. You know, sometimes you just have to remind yourself of what you've heard before, because week to week, it's hard to remember. So we're talking about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Nobody? Yeah, where God's will is being done, where God's rule, people who are under the rule and reign of God. Thank you, Audrey. If I had Valentine's Day candy to give you, you would get it. What about in the, the passage after that, we talked about the Beatitudes. How would you explain the Beatitudes? Thank you, Nicole. Same thing. I would give you candy as well. Markers of me on the pathway of, of God's rule and reign. And then last week, Neil talked about being salt and light, how Jesus explained if we want to really be difference makers in the world, then we need to choose to be salt and light. So tonight we're going to continue on. This is kind of fun because we're working our way through this passage in Matthew, and that means you don't get to skip the hard parts. And so I don't know if I drew the short straw or what, but this was a really tough passage for me. I don't think I've ever done so much work and research because I just didn't get it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, thanks for today. Thanks for the rain that just makes our earth so green and the way you just provide for us each and every day. I pray that tonight you would use me to make your word clearer and more applicable, that you would bring understanding and that, that ultimately we would follow you more closely and live our lives to reflect you in a way that really honors you. In your name we pray, amen. So I will never forget the day. It was May of 2012. I was getting ready for the challenge graduation party and my phone rang and it was my brother and I could tell instantly that something was wrong. My brother is a college professor about 50 miles away at a Christian university. So he was leading, about to leave on a trip to, of students to China on a water purification project. And so our paternal grandmother is Cajun. And so when we're excited or when we're scared or something's going on, the Gillum family talks fast. And so, but we can understand each other because we all talk fast. My mother doesn't get it. She makes us slow down, but we, the siblings can all understand each other. And my brother started talking a mile a minute. He was six weeks away from marrying the love of his life. And she had just gotten a phone call that her brother had been arrested by the FBI for robbing 13 banks. And he asked me what he should do. <laughs> and I was like, uh, let me call Neil. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think when, when the FBI is involved, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I only watch the show. I mean, I don't, I've never, I don't know an FBI agent, but it was terrifying. So I called Neil and he told me that, yeah, Trevor probably shouldn't go on that trip to China because he needed to be with his family. And so, but if you were to meet Michael, the bank robber, he is the nicest guy. Like, he is clean cut, he is good looking. You would never think, I'm in the presence of a criminal and I should guard myself. No, you would never think that. He is the sweetest, nicest guy. He had two little kids at the time. I mean, he, they're grown up now because this happened several years ago. Um, he got desperate for money. And in his mind, that 
made sense. But until that point in my life, I had never met a bank robber. I'd never celebrated a birthday with a bank robber. I'd never been to a bank robber's house. I'd, I'd never like done anything with a bank robber. It was just out of my, I have other criminals in my family, but never, not <laughs> bank robbers, you know? So, but I never realized until I, I knew a bank robber how often we talk about people robbing banks. You have no idea in day-to-day -day conversation how often it comes up. And it's not sensitive to me. I just am more sensitive when I talk about it around my sister-in-law because I know that's her brother. But for me, it's like, oh my gosh, we're talking about this again. I never thought how often we talk about robbing banks. It's in like a ton of movies. Watch any crime show and about every other episode somebody's robbing a bank. And we just talk about it flippantly, like, well, at least you didn't rob a bank today, or just throwing things around flippantly that I never realized before that day. But here's the thing. We do this every day of our lives. We compare ourselves to the people around us to assess how we're doing. We want to know, are we okay? Well, at least I'm not, you know, robbing banks. Well, at least, you know, I didn't wear that today, or at least I fill in the blank, right? Each and every day we do this, and we do this in our spiritual lives too. We are experts at justifying ourselves in every area of life, and it's so natural that we don't really realize that we're doing it. But as human beings, we have this unique, uncanny ability to convince ourselves that no matter what we've done, we're okay, because we just look around and find someone else who's done something worse than us, and it makes us feel okay. And this really isn't a new problem. We see this in Jesus' day as well. We want to know how we're doing, so we look around and assess it by how other people are doing. So in this passage that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus calls those who are there and us who are reading it today essentially on the carpet. And he says, in no uncertain terms, he gets straight to the point that though our hearts really long for checklists, that we want to check things off a box and we want to compare ourselves to other people, it's our hearts that ultimately matter. So what I hope you will remember tonight, and this is not an original Aaron Gillum, I wish I could claim it, but I can't. Um, this is what I want you to remember, is that checklists flatter, it's the heart that matters. Okay, say it with me, it's cheesy I know, but I want you to remember this. Checklists flatter, it's the heart that matters. Because human beings, we like rules. As much as we think we don't like rules, we really do like rules, because we use them to measure if we're good enough. The problem is, is that we like to have these like lists of righteousness. And righteousness is really the idea of being right before God. And so these lists of righteousness are very dangerous. And they're dangerous because they have the ability to make us feel like we're right before God because we've checked something off the, the list, the box. Like, well, I went to challenge this week, so I'm good for the next week. Or I'm, I went to church and challenge, so I've got two weeks. You know, that's the way we view things. We're checking things off the list, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm not looking for your checklist. I'm looking at your heart. We can easily think that we've arrived when we've checked something off a list, and that's not the heart of the gospel, and that's not what Jesus is telling us in this passage. So when it comes to personal righteousness, being personally right before God, when it comes to living a life that's pleasing to God, when it comes to following Jesus, it's the heart that matters. And just in that passage that we read last week about how Jesus was talking about, it's so important to be salt and light that that's how, as his followers, the world would see our goodness, that that would have such a profound impact on 
other people as we are good, as we reflect salt and light to them. Jesus goes on in this kind of confusing passage to show us what goodness looks like. How good is good enough? So we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to go verse by verse. And to the best of my ability, Lord willing, you will come out with a clearer idea of what it means to live out this passage. So this is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So is that clear? You guys are good to go? We can just close up and go home. You guys can go eat chocolate till you're stuffed to the gills. Um, so let's start with verse 17. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, all of these are Jesus' words. This is a famous sermon that he was teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And so when he was talking about the law and the prophets, he's talking about more than just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Jewish Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament is what we know it as today. And so it was what, much, much more than the Ten Commandments. So for those people who were in the audience listening to them, they probably thought that it was strange that up until this point, Jesus had not mentioned the law or the prophets directly. Though we know in reading it now, because we're reading it thousands of years later, he was talking exactly it was uh, about the Old Testament, that he wasn't talking against it in any way. They didn't realize that at the time. Because the life and the culture of a Jewish person, Jewish person was really governed by the law. Their religious activities marked their schedule and their daily lives. So sacrifices were made in the morning and in the evening. They were tithing three, or every three days. Um, they were instructed to rest on the Sabbath. They would go to the synagogue weekly and worship. And so their lives were really structured around this Old Testament law. But what we see is that these teachers of the law, these religious leaders, had added so many traditions to it. They were trying, the law was here, and they were trying to insulate the law. So they were trying to keep people from breaking this law by adding so much to it, so many barriers to it, that it was just making it, I think it would be very, very, very hard to live. So in this verse, Jesus is saying something he did and something he did not do. And so we're going to start with what he did not do. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus, understanding how his hearers are hearing this, he wants them to know he's not departing from the law and the prophets. He's making it very, very clear that his purpose and his intention was to fulfill the law and the prophets. And there is no question that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has caused a significant disruption to Jewish life. He was immensely popular among the people, but the religious leaders did not like him because he really threatened their authority. And so they sought to discredit him over and over again by making false accusations against him. They were trying to catch him breaking the law. Oh, he healed on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do that. They were just trying to catch him in the act of doing things to discredit him because people were beginning to follow him. 
So these religious leaders were really suspicious that Jesus had come to do away with what they loved so dearly, what they were trying to protect and they were trying to uphold. And what Jesus is saying is, Scripture is about me. All that you're reading, it's all pointing to me. Jesus isn't saying, I'm trying to compete with the law. He's saying, I am completing the law. The whole Bible is about me. From Genesis to Revelation, which Revelation had not been written yet, there's this crimson thread of redemption that flows of Jesus. It all points to him. Everything that the law was about was him. And so we see that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So this is what he did do. That's what he did not do. What Jesus did is he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So fulfill here, the definition would be to satisfy or to fill up. So rather than voiding the law, he satisfied the law. So Jesus' purpose was really to embody the word. So in John 1, 1, it says, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus would take on bodily form, that he would be God in flesh and embody the word, that he would establish it, that, that Christ really is the culmination of the law. So these predictions that were made about him and the law and the prophets concerning the Messiah were fully realized in Jesus. The holy standard of the law would be perfectly upheld by him, something no one else could ever do. These strict requirements were personally obeyed, and these ceremonial observances were fully satisfied. So it's like, that's me, I'm here. Like, you think he could just drop the mic at that point and then walk away, but there's so much confusion, he couldn't do that. So he fulfilled hundreds, hundreds of prophecies by coming and what he did on the cross for us. He fulfilled the law as both a teacher of the law and a doer of the law. And he obeyed the law fully himself and taught other people to obey it. So in living this perfect life, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. And in dying the sacrificial death, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws. So ceremonial laws, for those of you who may not be familiar with, with Jewish culture, I grew up in rural Oklahoma. I don't think I met a Jew till college. We didn't have many in rural Oklahoma. So in case you're like me, the ceremonial laws were really just instructions on regaining right standing with God. And so they included things like sacrifices and ceremonies that would make people clean before God again. Um, remembrances of what God had done in Israel. They had festivals and feasts to celebrate that. They did specific regulations that God had imposed saying, this is how I want you to be as my people who are following me compared to the pagan culture around you. So there were dietary laws and um, clothing restrictions. And then there were these signs that kept pointing to the Messiah. You know, the Passover and circumcision and the Sabbath, all these things just kept pointing to this Messiah that would one day come and fulfill all these prophecies. So we see Jesus fulfilled the law, but he was also the culmination of everything that the law and the prophets were pointing to. So day after day, these priests were making sacrifices in the temple for the forgiveness of sin for the people, right? And these ceremonial laws that had been imposed years before were never meant by God to be permanent. They were always meant to point, not just to something, but to someone being Jesus. And so they were meant to point to the Messiah that would come. Their need for personal holiness, the recognition of forgiveness of sin, this future and final sacrifice of Jesus, all of that was pointing to Jesus. That only through Jesus could eternal salvation be obtained. So 
after Jesus, there was no need for priests to make sacrifices in the temple. There was no need for just one person to be able to go into the special place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that by grace, through faith, we can have a personal relationship with Jesus, that we can be made right with God, that we can have the righteousness that is totally unattainable apart from him. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 really spells this out. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He is taking it all away, nailing it to the cross. Now remember, Jesus knew that the law was not enough, that the law gives us knowledge of sin. The law helps us know where we fall short, like this is the standard and this is me. And so it helps me see there's a gap here and I can't pay for the gap. That the law has no power to save, only Jesus has the power to save. But it was to help us see that we had a need for forgiveness, that we fell short, that we needed a savior. So moving on to verse 18, Jesus continues to explain this. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So he's saying not even the most insignificant change to these sacred scriptures was permissible. Jesus is giving us his idea of how valuable and his view of the word of God, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, that it is inspired. He's saying the tiniest little letter and even the stroke on a letter that would change it from being that letter to another letter, that's not going to pass away before heaven and earth are destroyed. It's like that's how seriously in his view of scripture. And he moving on to verse 19, he says this, therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I will be honest, I never understood this verse. This verse has tripped me up this week so many times. I have wrestled and wrestled with this and um, prayerfully this is going to help you as it has helped me. So what he's saying here is, is don't minimize the law. Don't loose or relax them. You are not at liberty to pick and to choose what you will obey and what you will disobey. That is not up to you. Augustine said this, and I think this is so key. It says, if you believe what you like in the Bible, you don't believe the Bible. You believe yourself. I want to say that one more time. If you believe what you like in the Bible, you don't believe the Bible. You believe yourself. Because it's really, it's a question of authority. Is God's word the authority in your life? Or are you the authority in your life? Because Jesus isn't saying, Aaron, on days of the week that start with T, obey these. You're, you're free to choose. But on other days, like, no, no, it's not a, it's not a buffet. I don't, it's not a negotiation. It's like, this is my word. Obey it. All of it. Because he designed life and he created me, and he knows the best way to live, and so to trust him in that. And so when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to those who are in the kingdom, who are under the rule and reign of God, which is so interesting. So there's kind of two schools of thought on this least and greatest. I'm going to give you both schools and then tell you where, I, where I'm landing on this one. So the first, first school of thought is that the least great is kind of referring to future eternal rewards. 
I don't necessarily fall in that camp. I fall in this camp. That I think that what he is talking about is really more of a, of a more or kind of less worthy. This idea of if you have a low view of God's commands and you're kind of willy-nilly with them, then you are a poor representation of the kingdom of God. So, for example, if I was a vegan, which I'm from rural Oklahoma, so there's no, I, no possible way I could be a vegan. Um, I love meat. I, if you saw me every Thursday night before challenge at Wahlburgers eating, like, the juiciest, beefiest, like, kind of medium rare bloody in the middle burger every week you would be like you are a poor representation of a vegan you would be so offended like Aaron that's not a vegan but on Thursdays I'm not a vegan but every other day of the week I'm a vegan you know like you don't like that we don't like it when people live like that being willy-nilly but we can tend to do that with God's word too like some days I'm a good representation some days I'm not so good but Jesus calling us to the standards of to embrace his law. No offense, Audrey, I love vegans. Um, <laughs> um, I wish I could be, but I can't. Um, that we would want to have a high view of God's commands, that we would embrace them, that we would apply them to our life, and in so doing, we would be great representatives of the kingdom of God. But when we have a casual and a careless approach to God's word and to God's command, then Aaron is a very poor representation of the kingdom of God. But when I choose to the best of my ability with the help of the Holy Spirit to obey to, and to trust God and to um, live by his commands, then I'm a better salt shaker and a better light bearer because I'm representing God's kingdom in a more accurate way. I hope that makes sense. We're going to move on to the last verse in verse 20, and it says this. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So teachers of the law, also called scribes and Pharisees, they were kind of in the first century what we call the religious right. They were revered. Their heart was to bring the culture back to God. They were esteemed and highly regarded. Kind of they were the standard in that day and age. And we look back thousands of years later and we see a group of, of men who just missed it, that their hearts were so bound up in what we would define as legalism, that they were trying to earn their way to God. And it just didn't work. But what is important to understand is, is there's really a difference between being moral and being moralistic. God wants us to be moral people, but moralistic is someone who trusts in their own moral ability. And we don't want to be moralistic. We don't have <clears throat> enough in our moral ability to trust in, right? We shouldn't be amoral and we shouldn't be immoral. We should be moral people because we are made in the image of God <clears throat> and he has created us to, to know right and wrong. For those of us who are Christ followers, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he will quickly convict us when we are stepping aside to the wrong thing, that we should care about morals, that when Jesus talks about the rightness of the law, there's a reason for that. He's not endorsing legalism, but he's saying, I want you to keep the law because it's the best way to live, not because it earns us any good favor with him. So he explains that your righteousness must surpass. So what is this idea of righteousness? The Bible standard 
of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every word, every attitude. So it's God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every word. I mean, think about that. Like true and perfect righteousness is not possible. It is absolutely not possible for man to attain on our own. It, we cannot do it. The standard is just way too high. But he's saying, you need a righteousness that's far more than checking boxes. That's not going to get you in right standing with God. It's about your heart. So Jesus is kind of juxtapositioning two ways. The gospel of the kingdom, which is very different from religion. Religion <clears throat> can look similar, but they are vastly different than the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus isn't saying, don't keep the law. He's saying, keep the law. Don't be hypocritical in your law keeping. Take the Bible seriously. The kingdom of God is something that we should value and we should treasure, treasure and we should live by God's standards. But that the law gives kingdom instruction, not kingdom admission. We don't get our ticket stamped at the door by keeping the law. That's not what it's about at all. Because the thing with religion is it's inadequate. No matter how good I am, it's never enough. It's external. It focuses on my outward behavior. It's evasive. And it's dangerous. Because it's deceptive. It gives the appearance that I'm right with God. I'm a good person, but I just occasionally screw up. And that's not it. Because when you choose religion over and over again, and it's easy to do and to fall into that trap of the checklist, we become people who are harsh and who are critical, and who are judgmental. And those people do not reflect the heart of Jesus at all. People did it then, and people do it now. It's so easy to slip into that slippery slope of checking boxes and just think, I'm doing enough, I attended, I showed up. But God is really interested in our hearts. And that's what the law gets at, our hearts, our motives for following him. That God wants purity at the source. You think, if anyone was serious about the law and the prophets, it was Jesus. But the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day is that Jesus understood the law was not enough. It will never be enough. That religious leaders keeping the law was not enough. You and I keeping the law is not enough. It's manufactured righteousness. That Jesus became righteousness for us. That 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Jesus who knew no sin, like Jesus was God in flesh to become sin for us so that in Jesus we could be made righteous before God. And that's a mystery I will never understand and never be able to fully explain, but that we are justified before God by grace through faith in Jesus of no righteousness on my own. I can't conjure up anything. I am infected by sin to the very fiber of my being. But it's more than just trusting in, okay, I've been made right with God, so I've got my ticket into heaven. No, we're made right with God. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, he lives inside of us. And so day after day, God's heart is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So that choice by choice, we're becoming and acting more and more like Jesus in the way we talk, in the way we act, in the way we relate to people. And this happens as we spend time in his word, as we come to understand who he is in his heart and begin to live it out and apply it to our life. 
it's not easy, and we can't do it apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. On our own, we are incapable of manufacturing any sort of righteousness on our own. But he wants us, his invitation for us is to follow and to obey and to be conformed into the image of him. So in the dining hall, as you're walking down Truesdale, as you're posting things on social media, as you're going home and relating to your family, in every area of our lives, that we would become more and more like him, that we would reflect the righteousness that we have been made righteous because of Jesus, and we would be becoming more and more righteous because through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do that. But remember, our tendency over and over again is just to rely on our checklists and be like, well, I did this this week, so surely I'm, I'm good enough, and compare ourselves to other people. But what was it that I wanted you to remember? Checklists flatter, but it's the heart that matters. And that Jesus is our righteousness, that the only way we will be ever be able to stand before the throne of God, there's a song that says, dressed in his righteousness alone, that I will faultless be before the throne, that there will be no fault found in me because of the righteousness of Jesus. And that is an incredible thing. So some questions as I wrap up to ask yourself tonight, to kind of get the juices flowing and to think about where you may be in this whole idea of kingdom living and living under the rule and reign of Christ. The first question I would say is this. What is keeping you from the kingdom, from living under the rule and reign of God? Is it the fear of missing out? Is it embarrassment? Is you, you just don't want to change or you can't imagine that, that life with God wouldn't be so rigid and full of rules that it could be any fun at all. What's keeping you from the kingdom of God? And the second thing I would ask you is this, is what is your view of scripture? What is your view of scripture? Do you disregard what you don't like, what is hard or what is unpopular today? Do you hold it in high regard and seek to apply it to your life. And the last question is this. When you are tempted to check boxes and to trust in religious activity to be good enough, rather than relying on Jesus' righteousness and allowing that to motivate you to live for him, when are you tempted to do that? I know for me it's easy to just swing that way to religion rather than focusing on kingdom living and the heart of the gospel. Think about what is going on in my heart? What's motivating that? Why am I trying to earn and be good enough? Is there disobedience? Is there rebellion? What's going on in my heart? So when you catch yourself saying, maybe not externally, maybe just dialoguing in your mind, well, at least I didn't. Say, well, at least I didn't rob a bank. At least, you'll, you'll think of this message when you hear that, because I'm telling you, it comes up far more often than you ever realize. Um, or at least I did. You know, well, this week, I prayed on my way to class. Before that midterm, I prayed. Or, you know, like, well, before I ate that questionable meal at EBK, I prayed. You know, like, just checking boxes and trying to think, okay, God, did I do enough this week to be right for you? Remember that that's religion. And Jesus came and spoke against that, that his gospel is the heart. He wants to deal with us at a heart level, not the externals, not the behavior. He wants us to be conformed to his image, and that begins on the inside. So let me pray, and we will welcome up the worship team. Father, I thank you for your word, and that though it is 
oftentimes confusing and perplexing that that is powerful and that the truth has the ability to change us as we submit to it and as we follow you. And so I pray that you would um, really help us to evaluate accurately where we are in just this journey of living in the kingdom and, and how we view your word and that we would be people um, who would have a high view of scripture, that we would be great representatives of you because by your spirit we are able to do that. In your name I pray, amen.